afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. My name is Sean Amesty. I am the current events coordinator here at IWP, as well as an MA student. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to speak to myself or another staff member at the conclusion of the event. To support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu forward slash donate. Again, that is iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Will Flanagan, who will deliver a lecture entitled, Affordable and Mass-Producible, Nuclear Safeguards for Homeland Security. Dr. Will Flanagan received his undergraduate education at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Learned from astronomy research by the fascinating connection between cosmology and particle physics, he began doing Large Hadron Collider, LHC, phenomenology at Texas A&M through a summer research experience for undergraduates' internship. Dr. Flanagan later returned to Texas A&M for his PhD, searching for dark, dark matter excuse me, at the CMS experiment along the LHC beamline. His hitchhike through the field of particle physics has included various neutrino experiments, as well as the development of novel particle detectors. Dr. Flanagan's current focus is developing on solid-state neutron detector with Austin-based Cerium Labs. The team recently completed a short journal publication and is actively developing future prototypes with applications from nuclear non-proliferation to hydrogen exploration. Before joining Cerium, Dr. Flanagan was an assistant professor at the University of Dallas and remains an affiliate professor there with an active lab. Dr. Flanagan is also a member of the Texas Army National Guard and is currently activated to teach physics at the United States Military Academy at West Point. With that, please welcome Dr. Will Flanagan. Sean, for the nice introduction. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me. Uh, based on the room size, I think I'll go without a, a microphone. Um, so today I'll be talking about nuclear safeguards, just ways in which uh, we can make the world perhaps a little bit safer is, is my driving mission. So um, first I'll start with a brief introduction on me. I just find talks more engaging, more interesting if I know uh, who's, who's talking to me. Um, so in terms of my background, um, Sean, Sean said some of it, but I got a PhD, so physics is, physics is my background. Um, I was working on the Large Hadron Collider, which discovered the Higgs boson. That's what I was thinking about when I was going through graduate school. Um, later on, I went into what's called neutrino physics, a different type of particle, also trying to solve some mysteries for how the universe is the way it is. Uh, though it's also interesting for nuclear safeguards in its own right, I won't get into that, but Japan can monitor Chinese nuclear reactors from hundreds of miles away. Um, so there's also interesting safeguards behind it, but I won't go down that road today. Um, the next thing I got into was uh, I was a professor at University of Dallas, and in this time I got to be more interested in practical things. You know, it, it was very nice to um, be part of some important discoveries, understanding how the universe is the way it is. But I just wanted to have a more tangible impact on the safety of our, our world. And so that, to me, became uh, nuclear security. After realizing that many of my advisors' advisors were part of the Manhattan Project, or my, my colleagues' advisors were 
uh, advisors, advisors were maybe on the German nuclear projects or the Japanese atomic weapons program. Um, I realized that perhaps we didn't talk about it very much, but we did have this lineage and perhaps some responsibility to keep safe what we had made possible. Um, so that's just what I, what, what gets me out of bed in the morning, what inspires me is nuclear security. So at University of Dallas, we started uh, working on some of the projects I'll talk about today. Um, along the same vein, I got into the Texas Army National Guard, where a lot of the nuclear response units we have in this country are actually National Guard units if there is, heaven forbid, a nuclear detonation. Uh, many of the units that will go in to respond to that are National Guard. So I joined one of those. Um, uh, later on, I've become uh, uh, a paratrooper and, and jump out of planes from time to time. I'm also at West Point. Uh, currently teaching this semester, teaching physics, um, but the heart of what I hope to contribute to the Army is, is around nuclear safeguards. Um, I was also a government scientist for a while, and then now I'm with a company full-time when I'm not activated by uh, the Army to be director of R&D at Syrian Labs. So it's a lot of hats, but what connects it all is, is nuclear security. All these hats actually come together in a very synergistic way around nuclear security. Um, on a personal level, I'm from Colorado, Texan by marriage, and so I have, have two boys, and I've really thrown myself into the Texan stereotype. Uh, we have a cattle ranch uh, shown in that middle picture there. Um, also in these pictures on the left are some of our University of Dallas students. So each summer, uh, we have research students at univers uh, from University of Dallas that are over at the CERN Laboratory in Europe. Um, here we are. Uh, actually just touring the laboratory with some University of Dallas students. Um, and then on the right, these are some people from the company that I work with, Syrian Labs. So around the common purpose of nuclear security, uh, the team, there's of course a lot of us that are part of this, this project that I'll be talking about. Some of what I'll be talking about is agnostic to the specific detectors and tools that solve the problem. Um, but some of it will be specific to what we're developing at, at, with our company and by this team. Um, so there's Syrian Labs as the company developing these chips, and I'll talk about how these chips hopefully solve our nuclear security, parts of our nuclear security problem. Uh, the University of Dallas is our, our dear collaborator on this. So four students are listed there. Uh, three of them continue to work, to work actively with, with us. One is now employed by Syrian Labs. Um, and then the University of Texas's nuclear reactor has been a big part of our, our development as well. Um, we've added some new collaborators uh, since the, the list here is mainly the folks that were part of the original team, our 2000, 2021 publication, where we came out with, with the initial results with these prototypes. But we've since added more University of Dallas collaborators and the Texas A&M Cyclotron. Uh, and then we also have one more great employee, Dr. Jolson, uh, who's joined Cerium uh, from the Large Hadron Collider. So that's, in a very brief nutshell, some of my colleagues um, that are also part of this work. So let's get down to how these chips help to solve the problem. So we are here at the Institute of World Politics. And so this morning I was looking at the, the articles recently published by the Institute of World Politics. And if you just look for a nuclear... Keyword, it is, it's everywhere. Um, so you can't really have a, a discussion about modern international politics without nuclear entering into it, whether it's, it's the overt topic or not. This particular article is about 
uh, anti-ballistic missile installation at Fort Drum, and how it defends us from, from Russian nuclear weapons. But the point I want to make is that nuclear weapons are everywhere. Um, they're, they're just a part of reality now that we have to deal with. But before we talk about present day, I just want to have a brief thought experiment here. So uh, it's 1945, and so at this point, D-Day has happened, Stalingrad has happened. It seems like the Allies are starting to win the war in Europe. Uh, we've crossed the Rhine at this point. And so if you were to go back six years earlier when fission was discovered and figure out the Vegas odds on who's going to make the nuclear weapon the fastest, you would bet on Germany, hands down. And so let's pretend that likely outcome happened and Germany is the first one with a nuclear weapon. So great, we've won the conventional war with, with soldiers and tanks, but Hitler then says, if you continue to advance, I will detonate a nuclear weapon in Paris in 48 hours. And then if you keep coming, maybe I have a nuclear war, warhead also in London, something of that sort. So if you think about that for a while, that's a tremendous amount of leverage that changes the, the arc of history. I think it's better to start with a thought experiment than present day, but similar conclusions can be, can be drawn about present day. So, in terms of who has nuclear weapons in 2023, um, there is some good news there. Um, the lights are on, and 10% of the electricity that keeps the lights on is from nuclear warheads that used to be aimed at the U.S. by the Soviets. We've done some dismantlement. We bought a lot of that Russian plutonium as part of the Non-Luger Agreement. There have been some good things in, in international cooperation with nuclear disarmament. That's the good news. Um, the bad news is that there's, there's a prisoner dilemma of sorts where it's irresponsible to be a, a modern power and not have a nuclear weapon if you're able. It's, it's just something you, you ought to do to protect your population if you're able, unfortunately. And so the list of, of countries that has nuclear weapons has grown, and also the number of nuclear weapons has grown, it, unless we're talking about perhaps the U.S. and Russian stockpiles. And so it's perhaps easier to... Um, there's at least nuclear weapons that are at risk of being stolen. Um, and then there's the whole risk of third-party actors that you can't retaliate against. Um, so that's, that's the bad news in 2023. And before we get into all that, I have a quick fission primer. I know there are a lot of big acronyms and scary terms in my, my bio. We will not have that sort of a, a quantum physics talk. But a, a very quick primer on fission... So fission is the process in which a neutron breaks apart a big nucleus. That releases some energy. It also re releases some new neutrons that can break apart other nuclei that are nearby. This process can run away um, and then multiply a number of, of neutrons, uh, fissioning a large number of nuclei, releasing a bunch of energy. And so some isotopes do this and some don't. We talk about that in terms of mass number. So if you want to read a CNN article on, on the Iran centrifuges and better understand it, there's just a simple rule to remember, and that's that the odd isotopes are fissile and the even are not. And so, for instance, uranium-238 is not fissile. It's something that's used for armor, but uranium-235 is the fissile one. Or uranium-plutonium, uh, excuse me, 240 
is the one that's in NASA's space probes as a thermoelectric energy generator, whereas plutonium-239 is the one in nuclear weapons. So the odd ones are the ones that we worry about. Uh, also, uranium occurs naturally. It's on every continent of the country. There was a time at which we thought maybe we could buy all the uranium. It's just, on, it's everywhere. So you can't contain all the uranium that there is. Um, plutonium does not occur naturally. So to take this a step further and just talk about if you're building a nuclear weapon, the, the dummies guide to building a nuclear weapon in terms of materials, raw materials. So you're going to start with natural uranium on the left. We call it pitch blend. And so there's two different things you can do. Uh, so you can separate these isotopes and you can do centrifuges. That's why we care so much about centrifuges with the Iran nuclear deal. You can do it electromagnetically. That's what we did in the Manhattan Project. Um, that's what Iraq was doing before the, the first Persian, Persian Gulf War. And then you can make a uranium nuclear weapon. Um, your other option is to have a nuclear reactor, and that nuclear reactor will convert some of uranium into plutonium for a plutonium nuclear weapon instead. And you can have different moderators. You can have graphite moderators like we did in the Manhattan Project, or you can have heavy water reactors. And so, um, as they do in, in India, or the DPRKs, plutonium for their nuclear weapon. Um, that's also what the Germans chose during World War II, which was their downfalls. They couldn't get enough heavy water. Uh, so there's, there's a few different paths to having a nuclear weapon, either through separation or having a nuclear reactor. Um, making simple nuclear um, devices is relatively straightforward. You just smash together half of your two critical masses, and you will have some sort of relatively big bang. If you want to make it a larger explosion, then that's a bit more nuanced of a problem and adds complexity. Um, and then as, as long as we're bringing in the alphabet soup, you can put in fusion material around, and that will increase your yield as this fission reaction happens. You then have a fusion reaction, and that's called a thermonuclear weapon, which is yet higher yield. Um, so that's some of the, the problems we worry about, or, or at least the methodology for making a weapon. Okay, so this is a lingering problem. You can think about the ways in which nuclear weapons can be deployed. Some of these are obviously conventional. This can be a plane, a missile, a submarine, as we're thinking about our, our near-peer adversaries. That's certainly the way they might deploy a nuclear weapon. But then there's also something like a shipping container. Um, so this isn't a new problem. Uh, there was a 1947 closed Senate hearing in which they're interviewing Robert Oppenheimer. And so Robert Oppenheimer was the lead of the Manhattan Project. And so in this conversation, some senator says, well, could you sneak a nuclear weapon in a shipping container into the port of New York and blow up New York? And he says something to the effect of, yes, that'd be pretty easy. And so obviously they're quite shocked by that statement. And they say, well, what can we do to prevent this? You know, he's talking to the the American Prometheus that brought this fire to the gods, and so now he's wondering what tools you have to prevent this, this problem that you've created. And he says, well, you might get a screwdriver and open up every single container. And so this became a very famous retort. They had the screwdriver report, and this um, became just a statement on how impractical it is to open up every container. Uh, there's no easy answer in 1947, and fast forward to now, there's not yet an easy answer here 
either. So with this lingering problem, uh, one more recent development is there was the Safe Port Act of 2006. Um, so this did a few things. This established uh, the DHS Domestic Nuclear Detection Office, um, and it mandated that there would be scanning of all incoming uh, shipping containers, um, radioactive, uh, excuse me, radiation monitoring of all incoming uh, shipping containers. And so it's great if Congress mandates things that can be helpful, but it doesn't mean that they will just be done. And so we haven't met that. We've extended that deadline three times, and it still hasn't been done. And so the reason it has not been done, well, at least a key issue is cost. And so there's a great um, article by the Congressional Budget Office in which they break down how much it would cost to actually do this. And there's a few ways you can do it with these cargo containers. You can um, do this screening at international ports before the, the containers come to the U.S. And so they've looked at that, doing that at... 453 ports in 130 countries. Turns out that's pretty expensive. It costs $22 billion uh, per year, maybe more, because this report's a little bit old, plus in inflation. Um, you could focus on 74 U.S. ports, and then you could scan 10% or 100% of the cargo. That's still quite expensive. Um, one thing I didn't know, which I found shocking, is, is just for starters, we don't scan every container. And so that's, that's a little scary for starters. Um, but here we're talking about we could get to the, a place where we scan every container. Turns out that's still prohibitively expensive. Uh, or we could focus on the 32 busiest ports, which is more than 99% of the cargo. And, and if we scan 100%, we can perhaps in a cost-effective manner be doing a good amount of screening. Um, it's about $200 per container as is. And so the cost is just the, the issue that seems to be the driver here. And so that's a lot of policy. I don't dabble in policy. Where I dabble in is, is nuclear physics. So this is where I come in to, to ask the question of what if nuclear detection could be both mass producible so that you can put these detectors on every, every shipping container, and then what if they were affordable? So that's the problem that, that we're trying to solve with this, this team here. And so one thing we would like to do is you, we take for granted in the modern day how many sensors are part, of, are part of your life. You know, you have 20 of them in your iPhone, you have 20 of them in your car, in your home, they talk to each other. And so we'd like to do the same thing with nuclear detectors, is just have this, this system or this internet of things connection of different sensors that can just seamlessly talk to one another. And so what we have in mind here, what we have prototypes of, it's a system on a chip. That means it's just a self-reliant electronics chip um, that's able to communicate with these other electronics chips. Um, it, it's intrinsically, excuse me, tamper-proof. Um, there's no way to get inside that detector and change, change the workings of it because it's just a little piece of silicon inside. Um, and then there's things with industry standard packaging as more and more of these sensors talk to each other in our daily lives, why not just make one of those many sensors that's feeding you information via a nuclear detector as well. And then if, for instance, you put one of these in every container in this cost-effective manner, actually you do then have a large volume of detectors, and so actually you're, you're increasing and increasing your sensitivity by virtue of your detection volume. So that's, that's what we're thinking about. 
Um, there are some more, uh, some additional international motivations. Most of what I think about is, is the risk of, of a actual nuclear device, nuclear weapon detonation. Um, but on a smaller scale, there are, uh, there's risk of dirty bombs that perhaps just some nuclear material gets scattered and that causes a great panic. And so um, there's a lot of incidents of, of lost and stolen nuclear, react, uh, nuclear material. Um, top of mind is also things like uh, Chernobyl being in an active war zone or current Russian threats along those lines. So it would be great to have detectors that can operate in contested environments um, and also in extreme environments and then that you don't need physical access to to be able to get your reading that can just broadcast, broadcast out your, your reading. Okay, so what we have in particular, um, so there's, there's different isotopes that interact with neutrons such that you get a reaction. What we choose to use, use is boron-10. This, this, the symbol picture shows it all. A neutron interacts with one of these boron-10 isotopes, splits it in half, and you have two back-to-back -back pieces. That's great because if you have a layer of, of this material and then you have a layer of stuff that detects these, these ions, well, since these are being back, emitted back-to-back, -back, one of them is going to go through your sensing transistors, and so it can be a very efficient detector in order to make the, the sensing that you need to do. Um, for our particular project, um, we, we were patented and peer-reviewed and um, are working on higher and higher technical readiness levels in the acquisition jargon. Um, so how this works, I won't go deeply into this, but you can pre-store a bunch of charge in part of this transistor. So this is much smaller than a human hair. You have, uh, say, two billion of these in a little chip, or you have trillions of these on a little semiconductor wafer. Um, you can pre-charge a number of these transistors in this yellow, green, yellow region. And that's great because then it doesn't need to be powered after that. And so let's, it could even lose power for 20 years. It will still be sensitive during this entire time. You just sort of pre-charge this, this device up. And so um, it, it has these advantages. So it's uh, very small. Many times in electronics, we talk in terms of swap C on the top left size weight and power plus cost. So we're, we're in order of magnitude improvement in all of those. Um, less background so the signal doesn't get confused with other, other possible signals. Uh, integration, being on a chip intrinsically makes it easy to implant it in something like a cell phone. So then you can walk around the building with, with this device as a different application and see if there's nuclear material in the building. Um, that integration can be seamless. And then by virtue of, of the non-volatility of, of our devices, as we call it, without power, they can actually function for 20 years. So you could leave this in a rock next to a reactor at the DPRK and pick it up 10 years later and see what the reading has been, something that's very um, unforgiving to other types of detectors. Uh, also can withstand very rugged temperatures. A lot of detectors don't work well with temperature fluctuations. We, we do well with that. Um, quite scalable. And then these detectors can talk easily to one another. Another big thing is after Post Chips Act, we are a semiconductor chip made in the USA. And so we're hoping perhaps there's something uh, Chips Act related we can benefit from. Our current prototypes are made in Austin, Texas. And then with MIT Lincoln Labs and Skywater, another semiconductor 
conductor ma uh, manufacturing company in Minnesota. Uh, we are a, a made in the USA solution to this problem. Okay, so we benefit from the economics of, at scale, or any semiconductor chip benefits from the economics of scale. So in modern semiconductor manufacturing, they're made in what's called lots, these silicon lots. They're 25 wafers. On those wafers are about a thousand different chips. You then split them up into your, your individual dies. You can put multiple of these dies into a single device if you want um, to have multiple layers of, of silicon within your chip. And then, of course, you can have multiple chips together on a monolithic uh, circuit board if that's what you want. And what this does is it provides you with a lot of freedom because you can either have a single one of these as a dosimeter or as a detector on a shipping container, or you can put a bunch of these together like the Legos I make with my sons, and you can have a very large detector at a, if you're doing something like a highway checkpoint instead. Um, other unique applications, I think I mentioned this one in the middle, but the intelligence community has been quite interested in this. Uh, because you can just put this, say, in a, in a cell phone, and it would work pretty naturally there, just with a little change of firmware. Also can be part of very small drones, uh, which is another application that's, that's had some interest from the Air Force. All right, so those are the things that motivate us, but let's see, uh, there's many types of radiation, and we're not sensitive to all of it, so I'm going to go into a little bit of that, but not at a deep technical level. Just stick with me for a couple stories here. So here we have a plot that on this y-axis is how often a neutron breaks apart a nucleus, how often that happens, and the right plot is energy. And so what this plot tells us is that slowly moving neutrons are more likely to break a nucleus apart than fast moving neutrons. And so this is surprising balls. And I have a cannon, and I can either throw these bowling balls at cars and see if they, like, explode, or I can shoot them from a cannon and see if the car explodes. It turns out, for some reason, in the nuclear realm, me just fairly lobbing it is the more effective thing to, to break these nuclei apart. Um, so this is something that was very uh, surprising uh, to a lot of people. Um, but just that's one factoid I want you to keep in the back of your mind is that we are more sensitive to the slowly moving neutrons. So I need to combine that with a second fact. And the second fact is that hydrogen slows down neutrons. And so the way that works is that if you, if you take a neutron and hit it into another nucleus, you can do some physics one, and I know you're not my West Point cadets currently going through physics one with me, but if you take, take formulas you would, you would learn in the first few weeks of any physics class, you can get this little fraction here. And what this is, the left-hand side is the velocity of the neutron after it's hit that nucleus, the right-hand side is the velocity of the neutron before. And so the thing to notice up top is if that nucleus and the neutron have the same mass, then this neutron, after going through this collision, will be moving very slowly. And so you can put in different nuclei here, but for hydrogen, since a proton is just a proton, and that's about the weight of a neutron, 
If the neutron hits a proton, it darn near stops. So counterintuitively, really light elements slow down neutrons. For most things like x-rays, it's, it's uh, lead that's going to slow them down, something that's very dense. But it's reverse world for neutrons. So putting those two facts together, or uh, continuing, we'll put those two facts together here in just a second, I promise, on the next slide. But first, one more story before we put those two facts together. Um, so how this was discovered, if we go to Enrico Fermi's lab in the mid-1930s on Via Panisperna in Rome, what he's done, the neutron has just been discovered, fission hasn't yet been discovered, and he's hitting different elements with neutrons, and he hits them over and over, and he's trying to see if they can be made radioactive. Marie Curie's kids over in Paris have just shown that some other type of radiation can make things radioactive. He's seeing if the same thing can happen with neutrons. And so his students report, hey, I can make salt quite radioactive with neutrons. And professor says, great, good job. Keep, keep working, move on to the next element. And then a few weeks later, they say, hey, prof, salt can't be made radioactive with, uh, with neutrons. I messed up, I apologize. Okay, and then he gets kind of angry, maybe assigns a different student to the project, and then that student says, hey, uh, it turns out I agree with the previous student. And then two weeks later, he says, I don't agree with the previous student. And now you can picture young Enrico Fermi becoming furious. And so what it turns out is there were different tables in his lab. And some of these tables were wood, and they're in Rome, so some of their tables are also marble. And so the wood table has more hydrogen in it, if we combine it with that with our previous facts, these neutrons were able to slow down in the wood and then come up and be much more effective. As opposed to the marble table, it wasn't able to slow down and then become more effective. So um, where that matters to us is that what's shown here is this plot, the, the blue line is the sensitivity, the efficiency of our detector as a function of energy. And if it was just bare, then we'd be really efficient to these slow-moving neutrons, but we would never, ever see these fast-moving neutrons. But it turns out if you put something with hydrogen, like plastic, around it, you can be sensitive to all energies. And so that could either be how this nuclear weapon's been encapsulated and attempt, attempted to be hidden from us, is these neutrons could have already been slowed down a bit, or this could be something we do on our detection side, where we shield some of our detectors such that if the neutrons are moving fast, we slow them down before we detect them. So the point is that we can be sensitive to all the types of neutron radiation that are headed our way. Um, so showing some of the, the excuse me, some of the data that we have um, so far, um, this is an underwhelming picture, but what we have here is this is a neutron beam at the University of Texas nuclear reactor. One of our chips is right there. And so this is the whole setup, because I told you before you can charge these things up, and then you expose them, and then you can read them out later. With Bluetooth, you can read them out in real time. But with this exposure, we then read them out later. And so this is the whole thing. We charge it up, and we sit it there, and then we, we blast it with neutrons and see what happens as our, our, the prototypes of these new chips. So I come from a detector background where usually if we have a new detector, there's like five crates of, of electronics sitting here. There's power supplies, there's data acquisitions, there's ways we need to preserve the data 
There's ways we need to make sure things are properly powered. There's a few cables to physically get those things to the chips. This is the whole setup, which shocks me. Maybe it doesn't shock you, but it shocks me. And so this is what we have our, our publication on. So some number of neutrons come into those chips and make this reaction. What that reaction does is it depletes the charge that we pre-stored. And so here, these are all the bits in the transistor that were pre-charged after the neutrons have gone through. A bunch of those bits shift over. That just means a bunch of those transistors lost the charge we had stored in them. Uh, so if we make a plot of that, or if we have a 4x4 four four array, we can play this game 16 times. If we make a plot of where this happens, for instance, it shows us the beam that's coming into our, our array of chips. Uh, there's a little bit of dead space with our current uh, just packaging of the chips that Lincoln Labs, uh, pending future funding, could help us to get rid of. So that's the, the detector technology. Um, it loses this charge. And we can compare that to more conventional detection methods here. This is gold foils. It's another method you might use to, to detect neutrons. And it gives the same information, albeit just a lot more granular. So this can give the same answer as current detector technologies, just we give a lot more crisp of images. Okay, so forest from the trees. It does seem that this technology is ready to move forward. It costs about $10, could be put into these shipping containers. Um, we are moving forward, especially with Air Force money. We, we also have the Army behind us on this. Um, so the question I pose is whether this, this can be a solution, or more likely this is a multifaceted problem. Can this be part of the solution to our nuclear safeguards problem in this country? We also recently had a major milestone with MIT Lincoln Labs. They make semiconductor chips, and at their R&D lab, they were able to show that we can manufacture the prototypes more efficiently um, in a way that I won't get into here, but we can make these layers thicker and yet still be able to burrow into them enough to make the circuit work. And so we've done that work with Lincoln Labs. Um, but this isn't quite the whole story. Story. We do hope we're transitioning to a program of record and starting to solve this problem. Um, but we do have some additional benefits to other industries. And so I'll talk about uh, some of these. So one of those is imaging. And so here, what we have is a piece of cadmium, is that foil with just some holes cut in it, and then one of our chips. And so we can put this piece of cadmium over one of our chips and send through a bunch of neutrons. And then on the right is the data that results. So we can make very nice contrast images with this. This just shows you that we can make, uh, we can use these detectors for imaging, what's called radiography. Um, so the, the spatial resolution of this is quite impressive, but if you don't think about spatial radiography of neutron detectors all day, I won't try to wow you that we're approaching the micron level. Though so that's exciting to me. Uh, but um, what you might want to actually do neutron radiography with, so for instance, on the right-hand side here, these are four bullets um, that are imaged with an X-ray on the left, which is a very common, widespread thing to do. But on the right-hand side, they're imaged with neutrons. And so X-rays will tell you if the metal is in the right place, if there's some obvious crack in the casing, something of that sort, but what it won't tell you is that the, the gunpowder is missing from 
the bullet or the propellant. Um, and so on the right-hand side, this is a picture with neutrons. Neutrons are slowed down by hydrogen. We just said there's a lot of hydrogen in anything that's an organic molecule like a propellant. And so neutron radiography is quite important to the Army. Um, right now, for instance, we're working with Picatinny Army Arsenal that's very, very busy making a lot of a more 155 artillery shells for Ukraine. And so they need to do this sort of work to make sure all that propellant is in the correct place. And so the Army is also behind us for this, this particular application of radiography. Um, we have some other ongoing efforts. So let's see, on the left, I briefly mentioned what MIT does is they allow us to make these layers that uh, have the right isotope, the boron-10 isotope that interacts with neutrons. We can make that layer very thick with them and yet still be able to make an effective circuit. Um, there's semiconductor manufacturing behind that that makes it difficult to do. But Lincoln Labs can pull that off for us. What that means in practice is our chips become seven times more efficient, um, which is what that plot is showing is the y-axis is as that layer gets thicker and thicker. Uh, excuse me, the y-axis is the efficiency, the, the x-axis is, is the width of that layer. And so as you make that layer thicker and thicker, you make these chips more and more efficient. And so we're able to go from one of those arrows to the other in terms of efficiency. So that's a factor of seven gain that, that Lincoln Labs is making possible through our Air Force funding. Um, and then there's a number of ways in which we can make the chemistry of it or the stacking of multiple dyes within one package uh, more effective to drive up our efficiency to close to 100% detection. Uh, so that's one exciting development we're working on. Another is radiation hardness. So um, that means being able to function for a long time in, a, in an area with a lot of radiation. We work closely with, with some partners such as the Polsher Institute near Zurich, um, where we put our chips very close to a really intense source and make sure these chips can survive. That seems to be going quite well. Who's going to be responsible for putting them in the containers and are they reusable? So to the last question, yes, they're reusable. Um, who's going to pay for them? So that's a great question. Currently, our funding is from the Air Force and the Army. Neither of those institutions are tasked with this problem necessarily. It might instead be this DHS um, nuclear detection office. Um, and, and as of yet, we don't have that. Uh, we haven't done demonstrations for them or, or have them... They don't have us under contract, that sort of thing. So I believe it would be DHS at the end of the day, if it's, especially if it's domestic. If it's, I mentioned there's a few solutions. You can either equip the domestic ports to do this, or you can um, equip the international ports and make it a necessary requirement for an inbound shipping container to have this. If it goes international, I don't know if that would still be DHS necessarily, or, or if it's, it's in partnership with another institution. So, to answer your question, I'm not exactly sure, but our current funders are not the ones that will get us to the finish line. Okay, questions from the audience? How does, uh, sorry, I have a question. How does, okay, how does this um, detection system differ from what, like, say, the CIA and other military operations already have employed um, in borders, like, near Russia and other places? 
Yeah, so, so many times they are deploying a, a Swiss Army knife that's also looking for chemical threats and biological threats. And so I'm just, at the end of the day, talking about one prong on the Swiss Army knife. Um, but what they have typically would be uh, what's called a scintillation counter. It's a, a, um, a material that lights up as radiation goes through it, connected to a light detector. And so it detects the light from that, that particle coming through. And so this is, this is intrinsically different um, in a meaningful way from, from those technologies just because we're, we're made out of different elements, we're on a chip, and we're, we're much, much smaller. Um, their, their advantage would be that you can make a large detector easily, but then again, we can scale up and just use a number of chips to do the right. same thing. Do you think that they'll eventually have applications for that once you learn more of the current chips that you have? Yes, I think so. One, one major advantage is that ours could be attributable. Since this is something like $10 a piece, this is the sort of thing you could dump out of a C-130 or some way that you yeah. don't actually need to get these back. Actually, some of my colleagues at West Point are working on the application of a, an artillery shell that would scatter all these detectors around. And that's the sort of application where we, we very much uh, thrive, whereas other detectors would have a hard time. Has there ever been an incident of a nuclear device coming in through a port that you know of? Not to my knowledge, no. Um, yeah, and that makes it one of those low probability but then very high consequence things. So, so how do you prioritize this with everything else that we need to worry about? Um, I mean, certainly there's instances in which thousands of pounds of cocaine get in or something like that, and so it's not inconceivable you could get a, a hundred pounds of something else in. But to my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet. But you can think about the sort of I don't want to come off as too conspiracy theory type, but you can think about maybe there's some that are already here and they're waiting for, if we're going to invade, that's when the phone call comes that says we already have a couple of pre-position, so secure move. I would suggest you don't invade us. But, but to my knowledge, it's never happened. If there are no more questions, please lift another hand to Dr. And thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, if you have any questions about any of our other upcoming events, uh, make me get to IWP or any of our graduate programs, feel free to uh, talk to me at the conclusion event or one of our staff members. And also before we close out, I would like to announce our upcoming gala, uh, which is affectionately entitled From IWP with Love, an evening of espionage. The event will be hosted on Thursday, October 26th, later this year, at the International Spy Museum. If you're at all interested in buying a ticket, uh, they're currently available on our website at iwp.edu forward slash event. With that, thank you.